Our scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians 13.4 and Matthew 18.21-35. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, As Drew said, we're just coming off a week of uh, General Assembly, so we've been in a room with uh, a bunch of men who have the same title as us, uh, many of whom look different than us, way different, some of them. Um, And uh, at times it it can get a little frustrating, uh, but I think what the last few years have taught he and I Uh, being on the younger-ish end of the men in that room, that we really do love uh, the family that we're a part of. Uh, And until our family tells us to go somewhere else, uh, we're not going anywhere. Um, So please continue to pray for our denomination. Uh, We we love it, uh, warts and all. Um, And so we just continue to to plod along uh, as ministers uh, in this uh, in this family. <clears throat> We're in week two, as you'll notice there in your worship folder. It doesn't say week two, but we're in the middle of a series on the attributes of love out of 1 Corinthians 13, and today we're looking at patience, as you probably gathered. Uh, and what we're trying to do this summer is really drill down deep into specifically verses 4 through 8 uh, of 1 Corinthians 13. We've taken uh, from January on through the end of the school year to look at the letter itself, but really kind of focusing in on the attributes of love, the, excuse me, the graces of love, uh, as it were, that Paul tells us or describes to us in these uh, verses. Uh, And as Drew mentioned last week, what Paul's really getting at here is a person. He's personifying love. Uh, He's not giving you uh, a series of Uh, virtues that are abstract or apart from anything, they are directly tied to, in fact, they describe the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the question we're really trying to answer throughout the series is this. How do you know the difference between a heart that's been, or how do you know whether your heart has been supernaturally transformed as opposed to morally reformed? Uh, Because there are lots of good and nice people in the world, but the question becomes, as you're looking at their life and as you encounter them, and even for you and I, why are we good and nice? Is the goal goodness and niceness? Uh, I have a pastor friend who says the last world, excuse me, the last thing the world needs is another nice guy. That's supposed to be funny. Um, It's a Scotsman that says that, so I, I can imagine, yeah, you wouldn't think that was very funny, but... Uh, his point is that oftentimes the way we describe people is he's just a nice guy, you know. He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. They're a nice family. They're, a good, they're good people. What does that mean? Well, most of the time, society and our moral training, if you think about, for a second, the Department of Corrections, okay, they exist for this reason. Uh, they train people uh, in either of these two ways. Don't steal... Because if you steal, you'll have to come back here to jail, right? Appealing to fear. Or we tell our kids, don't use swear words because you'll end up like those people, whoever those people are, right? Which appeals to pride oftentimes. And the transformation of character that we're looking at can only happen when our heart has been changed. Seeking to change behavior or character by appealing to pride or fear doesn't ever work. And if you're not a Christian or you're here, you're unsure whether you are, let me say from the outset, we believe the only way that real, lasting, heart-level change, what I mean by that is change at the motivational level, can only occur in someone's life through an experience of grace, that is God's grace found in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. The only way you and I ever hope to change, if you have a bad habit or you have a bad pattern of behavior in your life, you're trying to figure out, how is this going to change? Can I change? That's the answer. God's love for me in Jesus frees and secures me to love. The Bible says we can only love because he first loved us. And so, Jonathan Edwards says, and I've listed it there in the introduction again, we listed it last week, uh, it's a marvelous statement, and it's one that kind of a summary of the series, if you will. Love is the distinguishing mark of a supernaturally changed heart. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at the attributes of love, the graces of love, the characteristics of love. Okay, And we begin today with patience. So look at the outline there. It's in your worship folder. Uh, I, I, tried to <clears throat> I tried to go with alliteration. Well, I didn't try. I made it. I accomplished it. Three P's alongside of the P for patience. I just had to change the preposition. But even the prepositions fit nicely. Okay? So, I've been with pastors all week. and Yeah. So, first, the problem with patience. Second, the power for it. And then lastly, the practice of it. Okay? So, the problem we have with it Where does the power for it come from or the power to overcome the problem? And then how do we practice it? Because if all I did was leave you with the power and then said, now go do it, that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? You should say no, that wouldn't. So look at the uh, the outline in, in conjunction with the passages, okay? One verse from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, and really it's just the first three 
uh, words. Love is patient. And then this parable that Jesus offers in Matthew 18. uh, And the parable is here, and the reason we're using it is because it gives us a grid through which to see how patience and forgiveness works because a patient person is also a forgiving person, okay? So first, the problem, uh, the problem with it. What's hard about it? How do we typically respond when we're wronged? And how does our culture train us to respond, okay? So that's what we want to look at for a few minutes. Well, what does the word mean? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, okay, the word actually is two Greek words put together. Paul says love is makrothumia, Okay, which is the word macro and thumos put together. Macro meaning long, thumos meaning temper. So literally it, it reads, love is long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered, right? You typically don't describe, you know, he's very long-tempered. Because if I did describe someone as long-tempered, you'd think they were weird or I was weird or a combination of the two. But if I said to you that person is short, very short-tempered, you know exactly what I'm referring to, right? Interesting, isn't it? That uh, we've, we've kind of we've taken the negative uh, and focused on it when the positive is really what's described here. Being long-tempered requires two things of us consistently, patience and forgiveness. And these spiritual disciplines are tied intricately together, which is why we're looking at this parable. Now, more on the parable and how it helps us uh, later. But you all know this, everyone is wronged at some point. In fact, if you live with other people, you're going to be sinned against, you're going to be wronged, okay? The only place where you probably won't ever get wronged is if you decide to go off live in the desert by yourself and never interact with other people. It's going to happen. It's inevitable, right? Well, what happens to you when someone wrongs you? And if we're honest, most of us will give another person, you know, a few chances, Let's be honest, usually not one, we usually give them a couple, right? But at what point do you cut them off and say, okay, enough's enough? That's, <laughs> that's what's behind Peter's question, okay? If you look in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Jesus has just finished talking to them about sinning, and when you're sinned against, what do you do, etc., etc. And then Peter uh, comes up to him and says, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many chances do I have to give him? Because surely there's a limit, Jesus, right? What's the limit? Well, I mean, I don't have to tell you. You look at verse 22 and you can tell there that Jesus really answers the question with, there isn't one. Uh, And I know that brings up a whole host of other questions, and I'll leave that for your community group leaders to discuss with you. Um, But the question is directly tied to the definition of patience. And I want to give you a definition based on the texts here. Uh, And it's this. Patience is the inner power to bear injuries from other people without melting down. It's the ability to not let what's been done to you affect you. Okay? An inner power to bear injuries from other people without melting down. Now, think for a second about a piece of ice. Okay? In no way am I comparing a person who's forgiving and loving to a piece of ice. Wow. That was, that was tough. A piece, uh, ice is cold. It's hard. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, I want you to think about a piece of ice. Just use the word picture for a second. What happens 
when a heat source is applied to it. It melts, right? It loses its shape. It weakens. The heat, in fact, shapes it and controls it. The area that's closest to the a piece of ice, wherever you put the heat, that part of the ice melts first, right? In fact, you could come up with some weird-looking shape if you put it on the heat source and then took it away. The, the heat shapes it, controls it. And that's the outward or physical illustration of what happens inwardly or spiritually when you are wronged, when someone sins against you, when you suffer, how does it affect you? When the heat of that person's sin or that the wrong, the debt, whatever it is, comes against you, how does it affect you? How does it shape you? Can you deal with it or can you, can you bear with it without it affecting you, without it melting you, weakening you, changing, changing your shape? Do you melt? Do you fall apart? Or can you bear with it? Do you, do you hold up against it? Is there a person in your life that is just utterly and thoroughly aggravating? A coworker, a family member, worse yet, a spouse or a child, okay? How do you bear with that situation? How do you handle that relationship? Our culture doesn't help us. Um, I tried to think of a, of a, of a movie, uh, but I couldn't. So let me just give you a generic plot, okay? The hero or the main character is wronged by the evil character. He might even be imprisoned or banished to some faraway place, but the rest of the movie typically has the hero reemerging stronger than ever, and what is he doing? He's exacting revenge on the wrongdoers and destroys them, right? And what do we do? Uh, well, we typically celebrate that. We cheer for the hero. Because it's after that that he and the beautiful damsel in distress that he rescues, who shows up at some point in the story, live happily ever after, right? It's good triumphing over evil. But we see the movie and we typically celebrate, maybe not without even realizing it, we celebrate that hero's revenge. He's the hero after all, and it's good versus evil. But it's funny how very, very subtly that can work its way into our thinking about what to do when we're wronged. Our culture doesn't train us to value patience and long-suffering when when wrongs are done to us. And I mentioned this earlier with respect to moral training. What our culture often does is when we suffer wrong, we are conditioned to appeal to pride. How dare they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? Right? That's one response. Or we're conditioned to appeal to fear. If you don't take this opportunity to teach them a lesson, guess what? They're going to do it again. Now's your chance. Right, And pride is oftentimes the fundamental obstacle between these two. It, it could be pride or fear, but many times, many times it's pride. Look at the parable. The servant forgiven the larger debt forgot about his debt immediately. In fact, that was much of the problem, was his short memory. Right? He had just been forgiven this enormous debt, and then he begins to go out, and, the, and Jesus says immediately, Choke his fellow servant. Look at verses 28 through 30. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The servant refuses his fellow servant's plea to be patient, 
to literally what he says in that, uh, in that verse is, bear long with me, please. And he refuses, and he has him imprisoned. The injury or the debt that the servant, excuse me, that the, the servant who had uh, been forgiven the large debt, the debt he suffered or the injury caused him inner meltdown, and it resulted in anger toward his fellow human being. I want you to look at the violence of his response. Verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 28, he goes out and he seizes him and he begins to choke him. Now, how do you do the same thing? How do you, as he does here, seize, choke the the people who are uh, uh, sinning against you or the person who has sinned against you recently or in the distant past, how do you put the perpetrator in prison? What are some ways that we do this? Maybe we avoid them. Maybe we pretend that we don't see them in the grocery store as we walk right past them so that we're not forced to talk to them. One of my favorites is, you know, you're on two ends of the, of the, of the aisle at Publix. You know, you've got this main aisle here and, and then all the ones in between. You know, and you're walking past and you're looking up at the sign, do I need anything down that aisle? No, not really. You've been in the Publix a thousand times. Why do you need to do that? Or why do I need to do that? But I still do it. Then you look down the aisle and you happen to see someone at the other end. And you just happen to catch them as they're... So what do you do? Or what do I do? <laughs> Head back the other way. Maybe, maybe I'll catch them on the opposite end. I can check out and get out before they... Some of you are thinking, has he ever done that to me? <laughs> no. No. Nobody in this room, I don't think. Uh, but that's, that tends to be one mechanism we, uh, we um, employ to deal with this. Worse yet, when that perpetrator's name comes up, we make them pay their debt by bad-mouthing them behind their back, right? That's, those are all ways in which we can seize or choke without literally doing it, without physically putting our hands around their neck. But we ensure that they pay. And the debt... Here's the problem. The debt created by them looms so large in our imagination because we loom so large in our imagination. See, our ability to forgive sins, to bear long with others, is directly tied to how large we see them and their sin in comparison to whose? Ours, right? Here's the irony of verses 28 through 30. The servant who has just been forgiven a debt of unimaginable proportions thinks that his fellow servant is a greater sinner. You see that? His actions display a belief that he's different from his friend, and that's our problem too. Grudges, holding past sins over others, etc., etc., are all ways in which we show through our behavior we believe we're not as bad or sinful as the other person, and holding that over them is a means by which we, we think that we're imprisoning them, Right? When what ends up happening, uh, as we'll get to, and as Jesus alludes to later in the parable, we are the one who ends up being imprisoned, right? So it's a huge problem we're dealing with here, and we need a greater power than ourselves to overcome it. So where do you find the ability to be patient? And how does the gospel help us? How does it empower us to suffer long when others wrong us? Well, I want you, one of the keys to this is to look at the magnitude of the debt, okay? 
Look at the magnitude of the debt that the first servant is forgiven. Verse 24, okay? When the king begins to settle, this guy is brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, different scholars say different things, but suffice it to say, or for argument's sake, a talent was equivalent to about 20 years' worth of wages. And this guy owes him 10,000 of those. So, I'm not even going to attempt to do math on the spot, and I didn't put it in my notes, so forgive me. But it's a lot of money. Like billions of dollars in our categories, let's say. Right? Billions. And Jesus' point here is, obviously, he gives a number to his audience who's listening to the parable that would have been completely unimaginable. They would not have been able to conceive of 10,000 talents. That is like me telling you someone owes me $500 trillion or something crazy like that. You can't conceive of that amount of money. Even if I put it on a blackboard, you wouldn't be able to conceive of it. You just look at the number. And Jesus' listeners would have heard 10,000 talents and gone... That's, that's impossible. And yet, Jesus is trying to get across to them, to Peter, to us, that our sense of our own sin before God and the fact that we have been forgiven that is directly tied to our understanding of an engagement with those around us who sin against us on a daily basis. And so it does two things for us. It humbles us and gives us confidence. The gospel empowers us by giving us humble confidence. So let me go through each of those. Number one, humility. He says, you have been forgiven a debt of infinite magnitude. In reality, you can't assign a number to it. And yet, the message of the gospel is the king of the universe, God himself, absorbs your debt himself. The debt doesn't disappear. You see that. Okay, look at verse 24. 25, okay? One was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and family, all he had, payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees. He said, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And 27, out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave him the debt. Where did the debt go? It didn't just magically disappear. Who paid it? The master paid it. And so you and I, as sinful human beings, owe a debt to God that we cannot pay uh, ourselves. God is holy and just. He hates sin. He must punish it. And the debt you and I owe is our life. But what if another, who had not sinned, and so he had no debt, stepped up and said, Assign their debt to me and credit them with my perfection and my obedience. I'll pay, you let them go. What if somebody did that? And of course, if, if, if you don't know, let me tell you now, that's the story of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus paid the debt we deserve to pay so that we could be released and know the freedom of forgiveness. And as that truth becomes more and more real to you, then the pride of holding the debts of others over them and anger over what they've done begins to soften and begins to get emptied of its power because you are more and more free to forgive because your heart has been set free from the debt that you owed. And if you owed 10,000 talents, even if somebody owed you 
500 denarii, not 100 denarii. I don't care what they owed you, right? In comparison with that, what is it? Jesus' point in the parable, it's nothing. It's very little. Now, in no way am I minimizing the fact that some of us have been sinned against in very profound, very deep, very very nasty, nasty ways. Uh, and yet, the promise of the gospel is that even those things, even those wrongs, can be forgiven as we more and more trust in the work of Jesus on our behalf. But not only humility, the gospel gives us confidence. What follows is a trust, a confidence, a security. If the debt of my sin has been paid, if the cost has been absorbed by the king himself, then I don't have to worry about building up a good enough record of good deeds so that I can pay down the debt myself. I don't have to walk around on eggshells, scared that if I mess up even a little bit, God's going to squash me. I am debt-free. Like those people that call into the Dave Ramsey show. Dave, we've paid off $50,000 of debt. We're debt-free. That's wonderful. But I'm talking about the debt of your life that you owe to a holy God who you have offended. You are debt-free because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the promise of the king is that my sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus has washed it white as snow. And the more that truth is drilled down into the depths of my heart, the more free I become to bear with others, as long as I need to. The gospel is the power for being a long-tempered, forgiving person. And so if God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven me and continues each day, you realize this, each day God is suffering long with me and you in our battle to defeat sin. Don't forget that. As you're sinning every day, he's bearing with us. He's patient with us. And I, in the same way, as Paul says in Colossians 3, I can forgive and be patient with others who sin against me, sometimes over and over again. If you look at the assurance of pardon uh, in your worship folder, Paul says, the more we know in the depths of our soul as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, as we know more of that, God's forgiveness, the more patient, the more kind, the more meek, the more compassionate, the more able to bear, the more forgiving we become. So that's the power. How do you begin to practice this? Well, the parable gives us some, some practical helps and also gives us a very, uh, a very sober warning. Okay? So look thirdly there at the practice. The practice is linked to a couple of things. In verse 26 and then in, in verse 29, each of these servants tell the debtor, or excuse me, tell the person they owe, have patience with me. Suffer long with me, bear with me, please, and I will pay you. And in the one case, uh, the master forgives it. And in the uh, second case, uh, the, the servant doesn't and has his fellow servant imprisoned. But it is this, this practice of patience, this call to patience that the parable gives to us that gives us a sense of, of, of where, where it all comes from. How do, you, how do you begin to do it? Well, if you look 
jump down again into the parable at verses 32 and 33. Uh, part of the part of the source for our being able to practice this is in remembering. Remember, remember, remember. The king says, "I forgave you." Okay? You wicked servant, I forgive you all the debt because you pleaded. And should you, this is verse 33, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant because that's the right thing to do? Because if not, you're, I don't know, going to ruin your life? What's his reason? As I had mercy on you. When you forget the gospel, uh, you'll lack forgiveness. You'll be impatient. You'll be short-tempered rather than long-tempered. So I want to give us three things uh, that, uh, help, that I hope will help us to practice patience that are in verse 27. They're the three things that the king does, okay? This is what a long-suffering, a forgiving, a patient person does. Verse 27, Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So three things. He had compassion on him. He absorbed the cost. He forgave him the debt. And then thirdly, he released him. So first, compassion. Out of pity, his heart went out to him. One Bible commentator puts it like this. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy, the person who sinned against me, from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And so when we're identifying with those who sin against us, when we, again, it goes back to remembering, when we remember who we are, that we are no different from them, that we have sinned against a holy God in infinite debt and have been forgiven, then we will, out of that, be able to have pity, to identify, to have compassion, and then secondly, absorb the cost. I mentioned this earlier. The 10,000 talents that the king uh, forgave that first servant did not just disappear, it still existed only the king chose to absorb it himself. And so if you sin against me, right, there's a debt that's created, and I can do one of two things. I can pay it, or I can make you pay it. And there were a couple of, I gave you a couple of, uh, you know, silly illustrations earlier of, of how you might can make the other person pay. But in the gospel, God paid it. God absorbed it. And what the king does here is the same thing. Uh, And so that's how you and I begin to, or that's another step, I should say, in which you and I begin to practice that. We identify with, we have compassion on the person who sinned against us. We pay the debt, we absorb the cost, rather than making them. And then lastly, we release them. We make a commitment not to exact a price. You are choosing to pay yourself rather than exacting a price from that person. Forgiving is taking proactive action and discipline toward paying the price for the debt created by the wrongdoer. And so, we're left with uh, a pretty significant question. What do you do with unforgiveness? What's the state of a person whose heart is full of bitterness, who is chronically short-tempered? I've been talking to you about the problem we have with it. Where does the power to overcome it come from? How do we begin to practice it? And yet... There is a culture, a world, and dare I say even many of us who often struggle with or found ourselves in seasons of life where 
our hearts are full of bitterness, or we're chronically, we're just under this chronic short-temperedness. And let me say this, in verse 34, Jesus says the following in, 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 in telling the parable. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The Greek word is torturers. Until he should pay all his debt. And then the parable stops, and he adds a little editorial comment that is extraordinarily important. Because he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. What will my heavenly Father do to every one of you? If you do not forgive, you will be sent to the torturers. Now, I think there's a temporary application and an eternal application. The temporary application is that just as the scriptures call us to not to take care, to beware, lest we allow a root of bitterness to spring up in our hearts, uh, you, you might think you've forgiven, you might think you've dealt with the problem, but it's, it's like a sand spur, you know, that the roots go way down into the ground, you can chop the top off, the roots are still there. But the, the, the scripture's warning us about that uh, is linked to allowing unforgiveness and bitterness to, uh, to stay in our hearts, and over time, it will begin to imprison us, we will become a slave, we will become, a, we will become tortured by our own hurt. And Jesus promises, Jesus warns us, I should say, his Father will deliver us to that jail of bitterness until the debt to him is paid. And so there might be a temporary situation, might be a temporary torture, but I do believe that there is a long-term, there is an eternal application to verse 35, he is saying that if unforgiveness and bitterness are the way of your life, apart from him, you will end up in eternal torture. That is hell itself. And so it's a real sober warning about the power of unforgiveness and the power of bitterness and the place of, in contrast, patience and long-suffering in the life of the Christian when we take the words of the assurance of pardon seriously as a community of faith, as Christians in this community, our witness to Jesus will become more and more powerful and his kingdom, as our mission statement declares, will be made visible. And so I want to uh, pray, I want to finish by praying uh, that God would give us loving patience, that he would work the grace of patience into our hearts, that we would be a people who are long-suffering bearing with one another, bearing with our community, that they would see that. Uh, Let's pray he would give us that, but only as it's sourced in his loving patience for us, uh, because that's our only hope. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for being the one to pay the debt that we owed uh, to the Father on our behalf, that you stepped up and you said, I'll pay Uh, these ones owe you, uh, but I'm willing to pay on their behalf. Please give them uh, my record of righteousness and obedience. Uh, And we pray that knowing that truth would more and more empower us. It would change our hearts. It would soften them to become people uh, who are long-suffering, who are patient, who are kind, who are all all of the things that 
Paul mentions in Colossians 3. And as a result of that, uh, that our community, our, our, our city, our world even, would come to see uh, those, those characteristics of Christians and those characteristics of the church and might want to know where does that power come from. And that as a result, you might be honored and glorified and lifted up and many would come to know you. Come and do this by the power of your spirit, we pray. You are only hope, Father. Come and do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you go from here, whatever situation you're facing uh, that requires patience and long-suffering, uh, the benediction is the promise God goes with you. Uh, that's the good news. He goes with you to empower you. Uh, and this is also a word to remind you, to call you to remember throughout the week. Remember the gospel as the Lord in Christ has forgiven you, so you also must forgive as Paul calls us to in Colossians. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.